Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight. And our topic is the Ark and the Curtains. Now, we've had a number of Bible studies about the tabernacle and various different, uh, you know, the, the pieces of furniture or whatever you want to call them that are in there, the features of the tabernacle. And finally, we get to the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, the most central thing in the whole of Israelite life. Why on earth would I throw in the curtains? Surely the curtains are the outermost. I mean, it's sort of like the wrapper of a fast food meal. You just can't get rid of it fast enough. You know, don't you just mentally like get rid of those curtains. So now we can see what's going on in there. But actually the curtains are more important than that. And I hope to explain that to you tonight. So if you're willing to come on that journey with me, let's do it. Let's open with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. We gather together, Lord, in your name, searching through the pages of your word to understand your heart and your mind and who we are, what it is that you would have us to do. Amen. So nice to be with you, sending love to those of you who are out there in Internet land, all the wonderful people who are here in the room, people on the phone, people getting the podcast Great pleasure to be with you again. I'm feeling a lot better. Uh, and um, so this is uh, Ash Wednesday, as you may know. This is the beginning of the sort of Easter cycle for a lot of Christians. And this did turn out to be, through no fault of my own, sort of an Eastery topic tonight in a way that I hope to be able to get across because it has to do, to some extent, with the question of the Incarnation. Now, I want to set this up, and I want to apologize ahead of time. I don't even know what I'm going to say, but I apologize unreservedly for whatever it is. But um, it, you, if you play devil's advocate with the incarnation, you'd say, okay, here you've got God. God is infinitely powerful, is eternal, is omniscient, omnipresent. What do you get the person who has everything? What could you possibly add to total infinity and eternity and all those qualities, all those infinite qualities? And you say, oh, well, I know what would help. You know, uh, and there's even this idea in Scripture that for Jesus to be born into this world, he was called the Holy One. In the Old Testament, he's referred to as the Holy One of Israel. And in the Christmas story, you may remember, it says that that, that Holy One that is born of you uh, will be called the Son of God and that kind of thing. So there's, there's, so how does the infinite, perfect God, perfect love and perfect wisdom, how does that become more holy? Are you really trying to tell me that that you look down? There's a hundred billion galaxies. So you pick this nondescript galaxy called the Milky Way over here, and then you dial in through those hundreds of billions of stars, and you find this one nondescript little star. And then it turns out it's got this little BB riding around it, and on those BB there's little microbes called human beings living there. And what would really help God would to be would would be to be one of those microbes, to have a little flesh of his own. You know that would be really holy. That would make God more powerful. I mean, it sounds ridiculous when you frame it that way. What on earth about incarnating could possibly help God be more powerful and more holy? What's the deal? And this is related to our topic about the Ark of the Covenant, because even though the Ark of the Covenant is the most central thing, it's the most sacred thing, it contained the Ten Commandments, nevertheless, Swedenborg says, and this really made me scratch my head, he says, the thing that made the tabernacle holy was the curtains. It was the curtains that made it. You know, that's as ridiculous in a way of saying, oh, here, take on this human flesh. You say, why would I take on human flesh? Is it so great to have knee problems or digestive issues? Is it so wonderful to age rapidly, to be completely spiritually blind and stupid for many, many years and then age and die? You know, like what's so great about being a little worm on this little BB here on this particular little, little solar system? Um, why would that help? Why does that help? Well, I hope to answer that tonight. And if I don't, I'm in big trouble. 
All right, so let's, let's, let's dig in there. Let's look at some passages about the Ark of the Covenant and try to think about this a little bit. Let's go to Exodus chapter 25. Because <clears throat> you remember the concept, do you not, good friends, that everything in the Old Testament was actually about Jesus, the great story of the Bible. You boil it down. If you threw it in a pot and you boiled it for 40 days and 40 nights, what would be left in the bottom would be the statement, God was born as a human being. And so what we're trying to look at tonight is why would you do that? And why would that help? Why is that a good thing? Why was that a good thing to do? What, what did that do? Let's look at the Ark of the Covenant, Exodus chapter 25. Let's start at verse 10 right there. And this is just a typical kind of Exodus description that we'll read here down to verse 22. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. Mm. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. Now let's pause there. The testimony was a term for the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone which contained the Ten Commandments were put in there, and it's interesting that they're called the testimony. So file that in your mind. What is a testimony? It's a, it's a witness or a record of some kind, right? Uh, they're called the testimony, and that's what's put in the center of the ark. So in this chart, for those of you who are getting the visuals uh, that I've used for a number of weeks, we're talking about the most holy place, or what's called the Holy of Holies, and the Ark of the Covenant was here in the, in the center of it. Uh, behind a veil, and then that was behind another veil, all surrounded with curtains and so on. Okay, read on verse 17 there, because this is about something that sits on the top of the ark. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Mm. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. Aha, so it's all going to be one piece of work that it will have this sort of uh, block, for lack of a better word, and then these two cherubs, which are, uh, I, I think of them as angel guardians. You know, they're, they have a protective function, as you can see in Scripture. Go on. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. Mm. So they face in, and their wings almost touch in the center, and they're sort of protecting this covering over the ark. Go on. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And listen to this. <coughs> And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, mm. from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Wow, so there's a promise of communication from God, and this communication will happen uh, right there, and in particular, it'll be from above that mercy seat between those two angel guardians, the two cherubs that are there on the top of the ark. That's where God is going to communicate. Um, all right. Um, let's see. I'll have some more to say about that in a bit. But so form the picture in your mind, if you will, of a, of a box that's made of acacia wood and then has gold overlay. So all you see is gold. It has gold poles that go on either side for carrying it through, uh, you know, gilded rings. It has the mercy seat on the top with the two angel guardians, and inside are the two tables of stone with the Ten Commandments written in them that came down from the top of the mountain. All right, let's go to Exodus 26 and hear about some of these curtains. Let's start right at the beginning of the chapter there. Exodus 26, verse 1. 
Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. I see. Oh, wait a minute. So, so dear reader, are you saying that not only were there golden cherubs, angel guardians, over the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, but the curtains had cherubs on them too. They, they had some sort of winged angel uh, figures on those curtains. Woven right in. And interesting, think about those colors. There's blue and purple and scarlet. They're very colorful. You know, it's a colorful sort of uh, look. Go on. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, mm. and the width of each curtain, 4 cubits. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one, on, to one another. Now, I don't know why, like, if you're going to have ten curtains, you could just hook them all together. But Scripture always does this kind of thing. You're going to hook up five of them, and you're going to hook up the other five, and then you're going to hook them together. It's just the way that Scripture goes. Go on. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the selvage of one set. And likewise, you shall do on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to one another. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains together with the clasps, so that it may be one tabernacle. One tabernacle made of all these different curtains. It's very important that they be separate curtains, and part of that is for portability, and then you attach them together, and then it's one tabernacle. So really, the tabernacle, in a sense, is the curtains. Like, the curtains make the tabernacle. The other things are just what's in the tabernacle. Go on. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. Oh, okay. You shall make 11 curtains. Oh, 11 this time. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the width of each curtain, 4 cubits. And the 11 curtains shall all have the same measurements. Okay. And you shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And you shall double over the sixth curtain at the forefront of the tent. Oh, okay. So it's like five, five. And so you have the other five and five. This is five, five, five. And then you've got a six that doubles, doubles over. Go on. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain of the second set. And you shall make 50 bronze clasps. Put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together, that it may be one. That it may be one. Very important. Okay, good. And those are, that's a description of this. And later in that same chapter, let's just look down at verse 31 there because this is about the veil that goes particularly between the holy place and the most holy place. Just a few verses here. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Oh, same deal. And fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. Oh, so this too, the veil too. The veil, the curtains, the cherubs everywhere you look, right? On the curtains, they're, they're over the ark in gold. Go on. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the Ark of the Testimony in there behind the veil. So this is very, very important that you set up the curtains first. That's what makes it the tabernacle. You set up the veil, then you take the Ark of the Testimony in there. Okay. Okay. Uh, the veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. Mm, it divides the two. Okay. Makes sense. Go on. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. And we might as well stop there, but we've heard before about how you have the table outside that veil and so on. You know, you have all those things. Okay. That's excellent. Um, all right, let's go to Numbers. So turn to the right, go through Leviticus and get to Numbers. 
because there's a rather surprising statement made about the Ark of the Covenant here at the end of chapter 10. This actually tells you, you know, so there's a lot of talk about the description of it, how it was to be made and so on. But then when we actually get going on the Exodus, we're actually journeying to the Holy Land. Here's what we read. 10, 10 verse 33. So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days. And the Ark of the Covenant of, and the Ark of, the, covenant of the Lord went before them for the three days journey to search out a resting place for them. It's interesting. It sort of makes it a living thing, doesn't it? That the Ark of the Covenant is going to go ahead and find a resting place for them, right? And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day when they went out from the camp. So it was whenever the Ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Mm. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. Now, those last two verses there, isn't that interesting? Do you see what that's implying? Is that what Moses would say to the ark was as if the ark was absolutely synonymous with Jehovah, with, with the Lord. When the ark would move, he would say, Rise up, Lord, go attack your enemies. When the ark would stop, he would say, Return to the many thousands of Israel. You know, so the ark is going to move forward, it's going to stop. And the ark equals the same as Jehovah. So that would make the ark important, arguably. You know, it, it's identified with God. Okay, uh, let's flip to the New Testament. Uh, we don't have many scriptures tonight, but I'll make up for it by telling you wonderful heresies that you'll enjoy. Uh, Matthew chapter 27 uh, this is the moment of Jesus' death, the death of his body. Let's read verses 50 and 51 in Matthew 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked. And the rocks were split. Yes, we'll stop there, although it's very dramatic. So the veil of the temple, which was the same as the veil in the tabernacle, was torn. So that veil had always been there. You couldn't go behind there except the high priest could go once a year, had to fill it with incense and spatter blood and so on. And, and yet here the veil, when Jesus dies, the veil tears open. Mm. So there's some identification with Jehovah with the Ark of the Covenant and Jesus with the veil, even though those are not two separate beings in our theology. But in terms of, you know, there's some identification there, is there not? All right, uh, look, go to Luke. Skip through Mark and go to Luke at the beginning. Chapter 1. This is an amazing statement about the Lord, what he was going to be like. Uh, pick up at verse 71. It's just talking about the purpose of the Lord coming into the world. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. His holy covenant. To remember his holy covenant. There, there are rumors going around Christianity that the Ten Commandments don't apply anymore, but that's what the covenant is. And the whole purpose of the Lord's coming in this world was not to forget his holy covenant or to throw out his holy covenant. It was to remember his holy covenant. So that covenant is holy, and the Lord was called the Holy One. So the Lord, in that sense, is identified with the covenant itself. Uh, but how does that make you holy to be born on this little planet in sort of earthly, feeble flesh? You know, what, what, what does that have to do with holiness? Isn't this a world of filthiness and, and disease? And isn't it true what they used to think in ancient times that as you rose up, you went into a world of purity and, and harmony and beauty, but down here was this horrible, you know, how, how would that make you more holy to be born here on this planet as a human being? But how, does, how does that have anything to do with holiness? And, and how does it, what does that have to do with the covenant? Turn to the right and let's go to the Gospel of John. 
go to the very end of John chapter 21. 21 verse 24. This is sort of the sign off from the Gospel of John. And I thought this was interesting wording here. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. His what is true? Testimony. Oh, his testimony. So is there some sense in which the Gospel of John is equated with the Ten Commandments? Like that was the Ark of the Testimony, right? And now John's testimony, his Gospel is a testimony. So does script, does the Ten Commandment also in some way stand for Scripture? See what I mean? We're going kind of quickly through this, but, but it seems like the, the, the Holy of Holies and the, the Ten Commandments there, they represent God, they represent Jesus, they represent the Word. Interesting, okay? Uh, have a look at uh, wonderful, glorious, okay, we'll go to the right, go through Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I want to go to Colossians there. If you get the things to start with a T, you've gone too far. Philippians 2. Uh, what's that? Philippians or Colossians? I'm sorry, I mean Colossians. Colossians. 2 verse 9. This is talking about Christ. Christ was just named at the end of verse 8. And then what does it say? For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Whoa, okay. So maybe that flesh that came into the world was just a little piece of flesh. But what was in that little piece of flesh was all the fullness of the Godhead. That might help us understand how that could be holy. Because all of that dwelt in that one little human package, you know. Uh, all of that was there, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Okay, turn to the right and go through First and Second Thessalonians, First and Timothy, go to Hebrews chapter 9. Interesting little statement here. Let's read verses 1 to 8. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Oh, the earthly sanctuary. You see, there was a tabernacle, right? It mentions it right in the next verse. So that's the earthly sanctuary. So there was a covenant, and it had its own sanctuary. Okay, go on. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Ah, that's what we're talking about. Okay. And uh, go on. Which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold. And then it mentions what's in the Ark of the Covenant. And it's kind of an interesting list. It's not just the Ten Commandments. What does it say? In which were the golden pot that had the manna. Oh. Aaron's rod that budded. And the tablets of the covenant. Oh, there are three things in there. So they had a golden pot. They had stored up manna from when they were wandering in the wilderness, and it was still in there. They put it right in the ark. That's uh, interesting that they put, you know, it wasn't just the Ten Commandments in there. There was enough room also to, to put the a golden pot with manna in it and Aaron's rod. Do you remember that story? There's an obscure story in the Old Testament where his rod, I think it's an almond, and, and it blossoms. And that's in there, too. Okay, and what is over it? And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. One of, oh, sorry, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, I'm going to use that phrase. I like that. I can use that in Bible study. Of these things we will not now speak in detail. I just like, it's scriptural, right? It's great. Go on. <laughs> now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. Yes, this is out here for those of you getting the visuals into where you had the table of showbread, lampstand, the altar of incense, and so on. Go on. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Mm. 
the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Mm. And it goes on with many fascinating things after that. Let's skip to chapter 10. And I want to read just verses 19 and 20 there. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh. Aha. Wow, there's a lot in there, isn't there? So boldly going, you know, go, going where people were never allowed to go before, go into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Wow, his flesh is literally likened to the veil curtain like his so in what sense what what in what way was his flesh like that veil didn't it say that the veil was there to divide it was there to divide this part from that part and yet when it was torn in two from top to bottom then it would let you in and something about his flesh wearing this little wormy little human thing in this world somehow was a veil that would allow people to go into the most holy place. Astonishing concept. Now, how did that work? All right. All, or at least some, shall be revealed, I hope. All right. It's always on a... <laughs> okay. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, Revelation uh, chapter 1. Um, let's look at Revelation here. And look at the first two verses in chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Which... I like knowing what it's a revelation of, and it's just right up front there. Hey, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Go on. Which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Uh-huh who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Aha! Uh -huh. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So, in the Ark of the Covenant was the testimony. And here again, Jesus is being equated with the testimony. Okay? And uh, let's see. Look at verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the, in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. There it is again. Okay, that's what he was doing there. Okay, look at Revelation 11. Uh, let's go to verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. Mm. And there was and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Now this is interesting because this is in the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation is after Jesus was resurrected. So when Jesus was resurrected, you know, at the time of his death, the veil is torn in two from top to bottom. And then later, years and years later, John on the Isle of Patmos has a vision. And in his vision in the spiritual world, which is all about things to come, it's very clear in the book of Revelation, it's all about things that are coming in the future. And he sees a temple of God that's opened in heaven. And what do you see in it? You see the Ark of the Covenant. That's what's in there. Right? There were lightnings and voices, thunderings, earthquake, a great hail. Okay, look at chapter 12. All about the woman clothed with the sun, which is so excellent. And look at verse 17. After the dragon is mad, was not able to kill the child and all that. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Mm. The commandments equal the testimony. We haven't changed the game. Same thing. The, commandment, the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, uh, that it was the Ark of the 
testimony and it contained these commandments, right? Uh, and lastly, let's look at Revelation 15, verse 5. After these things, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Oh, well, now, back in the day, you either had a tabernacle or you had a temple. That was just the way it worked. You didn't have both. Because if you had a tabernacle, you were moving from A to B. If you got there, you built a temple and no more tabernacle. So, but isn't it interesting? Didn't it say that John looks and he sees the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven opened? And this is in a book that's labeled very clearly on the top of the box, Revelation of Jesus Christ. This, this is what this is. So this is a revelation. So something about this Holy of Holies has to do with Jesus. But where do the curtains figure in? All right. Let's try to, let's, let's try to reveal and, and uh, pray for me, friends. I'll, I'll blame you if this doesn't work. Okay. The, um, <laughs> it is absolutely astonishing, but Swedenborg maintains that the holiest thing, the holiest thing is Scripture itself. It's, it's this book here. It's called Holy Scripture, right? He says that Scripture... Now imagine, you've got angels who've been in the spiritual world for tens of thousands of years, and they're close to God, and they're having all these amazing thoughts, and, and they're in this state of, you know, elevated above their lower selves, and, and there's a purity and the love of God and all that. Swedenborg says that is not as holy. What they're thinking is not as holy as this book we have right here in front. How could that be? What are you talking about? It's the same problem, isn't it, as the Jesus problem? How do you get holier? You're already God. How do you get holier by being born as a little human being? How does that make you holier? Why would this be holy out here? Isn't it? Isn't the whole thing is like, hey, it's filthy and evil and bad here, and holy equals Godward. Go up, up, up. You want to get holier? Go up. The upper, the higher, the holier. No, says Swedenborg. What's holy is all the way down at the bottom. What's holy is the curtains. The curtains are what make the tabernacle holy. The flesh, being born in the flesh, is what made it holy. Now, why, why is that? Well, I'll try to do justice to what Swedenborg says. If you want to read his own words on this subject, you might peruse Apocalypse Explained, number 1088, from which I'm getting a lot of this riff here. Okay, now, uh, okay, let's, let's have a visual. All right, a new visual, friends. Oh, wow, such a relief. Okay, we've been looking at that other thing for a long time. What I've got here, for those of you who are getting the audio, is I've got a picture of rather two orange, uh, I was trying to make it gold, the uh, Ark of the Covenant there with the poles and the cherubim spreading over and, and the wings almost touching in the center. And then on the right, I've got an image of the Ten Commandments with the Hebrew writing from right to left. And I've got curtains down there with the cherubs on the curtains. And you see blue and purple and scarlet in, into the uh, curtains. I don't know exactly how they were decorated, but I just, you know, artist's rendering type of thing. So this is what we're thinking about. The Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant, those curtains. Um, okay. Uh, I've already said some awful things tonight. I'll say some more awful things. Okay? Brace yourselves, please. Um, these will be more anatomically awful. Uh, it is obvious that the thing that makes our body work is our heart and our lung. Like if you've got a, you know, if your lungs shut down altogether permanently or your heart was deep trouble, right? Your body will even, you see with people who are dying, that the body will even sacrifice consciousness before it will sacrifice that, that heartbeat or the lungs breathing. That's the most central thing, right? Like the holy of holies, the heart and lungs. And yet, if you just saw a heart out here on the table by itself, 
what would it be doing? Nothing useful. The flipping and squishing around like a thrashing fish or something, you know, it, it wouldn't be a very lovely thing. Uh, and what would a lung, I don't even know what a, a lung would look like in that situation, but, you know, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be very impressive, wouldn't be doing you much good. What enables the heart and lungs to do what they do is that whole system, the ribs, the solidity of the ribs. It's a container. Your heart can't function without a container. It can't function when it's lying out on the table by itself. Swedenborg says in exactly the same way, if you had the Ark of the Covenant lying out in some ditch in the wilderness and animals are running around and the wind's blowing and the sand, you know, not holy. What makes it holy is the curtains that hold it. It needs to be in a container. Now, bear with me, friends. This, this is bizarre, I know. But uh, with your ribs and your diaphragm and all those sorts of th you know, things that hold it in place. So the beauty of, of the rib cage and all that is that it says, okay, heart, you be here. Lungs, you be here. This is how we're going to hook you all up. Here's the diaphragm. Here's where everything goes. Then they can work because they're held in a proper relation to each other and they're able to function. Um, I even thought in this connection, Swedenborg says that the literal sense of scripture is like these veils. And it said there were those pillars, the, the four pillars that hold up the veil and all that. The veils, the curtains, they correspond to the literal sense of scripture. He says the literal sense of scripture is the holiest thing. Now, why would that be the holiest thing? Surely anything is, is, is higher than what the angels are thinking, you know. Well, the reason this is holier is because it contains, it contains all of that in one little place. And the human body contains everything in one little place. I want to tell you an analogy. Um, well, first of all, I just want to, uh, it, it's one of my granddaughter's uh, first birthday today. And uh, being at that age, uh, she is influenced by God to be much more interested in the wrapping than any gift. I mean, you've seen that, haven't you, friends? You know, the wrapping is absolutely fascinating to a child of that age. And the, the relative value of the gift, you know, you take it or leave it. But wow, this is fascinating, especially if it's bubble wrap. I mean, even older kids get a blast out of that. But um, uh, and you see, that's correct. Swedenborg is in alignment with that one-year-old. The rat—it's about the wrapper, you know. The the wrapper makes it. It's all the way down to the bottom, and it holds all that. Think about. So when you're thinking about that gross image of sort of a heart, sort of fishing around and, and it's sort of floppy lungs or something with no context. Um, uh, think about the words on the Ten Commandments. Now the word, I picture it, that they're chiseled in stone. I mean, they're written with the finger of God. So I picture that it's actually a gap. The letters are a gap, you know, where it's sort of, there's a divot in the stone and that's how you can see where the letter is. Now think about that stone. What's more important, the writing or the stone? And yet the writing, if I'm right about it, just being carved in kind of thing, it's an absence. The writing is just where there isn't some stone. The stone holds the words so they don't flip and flop around. I'm an editor, and I know when words flop around, it gets ugly, you know? They go in the wrong place, and suddenly it means a whole different thing that you didn't mean. Isn't it amazing to think that the God picked that very solid medium? Like, no, this word is right here, and that word is right there. Keep them all in their place. So the, the Ten Commandments don't get all jumbled up with each other or get turned upside down or say something they don't say. They're all cemented they're they're chiseled right into this stone with a kind of permanence and the stone is holy because it holds all of that now 
uh, think a little bit more about the human body. It's not just the fact that our physical flesh, like the, the ribs and so on, hold those internal organs, vital organs in place and let them function, let them do their job. You know, so your heart can be a real heart because you've got a rib cage, you know. Uh, but it's also because you look at us, we really are nothing to write home about uh, as human beings. I mean, you know, uh, I heard this this fact that you may have heard me mention before. It just struck me. They said the average teenage chimpanzee is five times stronger than the strongest human being who ever lived. Humans we're not terribly strong, we're not terribly far-sighted, we don't have the greatest hearing in the world, we, you know, we're not the fastest runner, you know, like almost anything in the animal kingdom is, is better than we are at, at something. Uh, our glory is not that we have such tremendous physical ability, but it's that other thing, isn't it? That we have this feeble flesh, but that flesh is connected to a spirit. And you think about what goes on in your spirit, now, let me ask you, friends, maybe this already happens to you. I don't know. It feels like it happens to me sometimes. Would you really want, just imagine that you didn't have flesh. Wouldn't your thoughts and feelings be flopping around like that heart on the table? You know, you're just having random feelings and thoughts or something. You're able to be held in place because you have this flesh. It doesn't matter that it's tiny and it hardly works and you die pretty soon. It's an anchor and it holds everything together so that it doesn't flop around uselessly. So you can have one thought after another. You can have a memory, you know. And when you think about what's going on with your thoughts and feelings, it's astonishing. Your thoughts and feelings, do they not, friends, if you examine them, they know no time or space, do they? Does it take you a long time to think of somebody who's on the other side of the world? No. Instantaneous. Does it take you a long time to think of some distant galaxy out there? No. You think of it in a second. You know? Uh, your, your, your mind, especially the higher levels of the mind and heart, are not bounded by time and space. And, more important than that, a major teaching of Swedenborg's is that our thoughts and feelings don't come from ourselves. They come from the heavens. The heavens or the hells, you know, but they come from the spiritual world, is, is what the origin of our thoughts and feelings is. That, that's where they come from. So we are like a container for these things that are actually flowing in from the spiritual world. And they're unimaginably vast. They're endless, aren't they? All the thoughts and all the feelings and all that stuff that goes through. You need to have something to put it in. Another analogy that I thought of tonight is that uh, we have a dress-up box for the grandkids, which is kind of fun. You know, we got, you know, bad wigs and long evening gloves and all this, all this fun, you know, fake pearls and all, all that sort of fun stuff in there. And, uh, but it's just one, it's a useful container because it's in one place and it keeps the dust off. You know, you just open the big chest and there, there's, there's everything in there. But... It's a, you know, you want to find this particular wig. You got to go through everything, you know. Uh, but so it contains it, but not in a very orderly way. The people that I work with who broadcast the Swedenborg Life Show have this box that's about the same size for holding all their equipment. You know, thousands and thousands of dollars of equipment. And when they go on the road, they take this thing with them. And it's got all this groovy black foam in it. And they've cut out exact little places for every little piece of it. There's the microphone. Here's camera one. Here's camera two. This is exactly where that cable goes. This is where that's standard. There's the plug. Here's all the stuff. So that even in the dark, after a while, you can just flip it over and you know exactly where the thing is. It doesn't, the first thing contains, the second thing contains in an orderly way. Then I don't know how to do the third analogy, but imagine if you opened up that box. It's not too hard to imagine this day and age where you'd open it up and it has an internet connection or something you can broadcast from there or something, you know. I'm trying to get across the fact that our body is like a box that holds all these things in a very orderly way and is connected to all of the heavens. That's quite a box. That's an important box because it holds a lot. You know, it's capable of containing 
just boundless things. In the case of Jesus Christ, however small and frail his flesh may have been, the entirety of, of infinity was in there. That's what makes it holy. And in a strange way, it's even holier than, than all the rest of this stuff because it's all together in the same place there and so organized. I don't know if you've ever seen a scan of the human brain, but it's just amazing. The sense of the order is just astonishing. It's just astonishing. It's a holy thing to see the order in there. It's, so our bodies hold this order. They may be frail. They may be flawed and so on but they're able to hold this amazingness of the Spirit. And so although this angel's having a holy thought and that angel's having a holy thought and all this stuff is wonderful and holy, the most holy thing is where all those things are together and they're held in exactly this order. These are the thoughts. These are the feelings. These are the memories. This is the beating heart. Those are the lungs. Everything's in its place and it all works because it's all contained down at the bottom. Uh, the veil uh, both separates and, and conjoins. It's really amazing what Swedenborg says about it, that it divides these two different heavens. And uh, uh, so you've got the spiritual heaven on one side of the veil, the celestial heaven on the other side of the veil. And then there are angels who are the veil. And you would think, oh, I always thought, I've, I've always been interested in those angels. And I've always thought, oh, those angels are the angels that are sort of a bridge so they can deal with the spiritual angels on one side and the celestial or heavenly angels on the other side. But no, I was reading about the, the angels who are the veil, that they have both things in themselves and they keep them utterly separate. <laughs> it just amazed me. I thought maybe they'd be a bridge. But no, they've got both in them. So they can talk to this group, they can talk to this group, but they keep them absolutely separate. That's who the veil is. They, 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 they keep them separate. Um, so the veil both separates and conjoins things together. Um, uh, the meaning of the cherub, I wanted to talk about the cherub a little bit. They, these angel guardians... They're a protection. You see them everywhere, don't you? And, and that's an image of the literal sense of Scripture, that it has those chair. They're a guard. There are these guards. You remember maybe at the, in Genesis when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, that, that cherubs are, stand there. Uh, I think there's a flaming sword involved. And they, they protect the way to the tree of life. Uh, they're a protection and, and guardians. So they might be sort of scary in a way, because it's like, whoa, don't, you know, there's a guard, there's a protection on there. What Swedenborg says they mean is so beautiful to me. He says those cherubs mean that we are not allowed into the Holy of Holies. We are not allowed to approach the Lord unless we approach in love. That's what they are. That's the protection. The protection is just like, you're not allowed in here unless you're coming in love, unless you're seeking love, unless it's about love. Then fine, come on in. The Lord, right in his own flesh, he was that veil, wasn't he? And, and, he, uh, and, and he, let, he let everybody in. Um, so if you're approaching God through thought and knowledge, you can maybe get out here with this image of the tabernacle. You know, maybe you can get into the holy place here or something, you know, if you're approaching it from thought. But the only ones, why there's all those cherubs all over the place, is that the only way that you can get into the Holy of Holies is when you approach from love. It's all about the love. If the love is what's driving you, come on in. You know, welcome. Doors wide open. But if it's not about love, nope, wrong approach. Sorry, not, not allowed in here. That's what the, the cherubs have to do with. Um, okay, one, one more foolish analogy. Do we have time for one more foolish analogy? I, I, I think we do. We haven't had nearly enough yet tonight. Uh, and that is another uncomfortable topic, which is a dentist drill. I was thinking about <laughs> a dentist drill, 
And I was thinking about the fact that it doesn't matter, like actually the drill has to be small. Somewhere else there's a compressor that's compressing air and it's running and it's squishing all the air. And the only way you can squish air is to have it, you know, you have to be able to contain it and build it up. And then you have to have these tubes that hold it very tightly and won't let it out or else you spoil the whole thing. And then the air goes down the tubes and it gets to that thing at the end that spins around a couple of thousand times a minute uh, with the drill on the end of it. I know it's an uncomfortable image, friends, but there is a point to this, which is that um, it's taking power and sending it right into one spot, right? And it takes that, it gets that diamond bit on the end there, or whatever they make them out of now, and just like, you know, and they concentrate this power. Now, the engine is not in that thing that's turning. You know, that, that's somewhere else. And, you know, it's got that big arm that goes all over the place and, and all that. It's transferring power from all the way here until it gets to this tiny little, tiny, tiny little point. Now, why is that a blessing? We all hate it, but it's a blessing. You know why? Because before they had that drill, you just pull the tooth out. 90% of your tooth might be fine. So, sorry, by the time you're 35, you're gumming your food. You know, that's how it used to work. So you die at 40, you know, that, that, that was the deal. Now you've got something where they can take power and send it out in this tiny little finger of a thing and just get the bad bit, you know, right there, and nothing else, sorry for the sound effect, <laughs> and save the rest of the tooth. It's actually awesome. And it's actually got everything to do with what the Lord was trying to do, because he was trying to come into this world. You know, that's great to have all the holiness in the world, up high in heaven, above all the, above all the heavens, or all the infinity of everything. Uh, that's wonderful. They got lots of it. They got plenty to go, plenty to go around. But... The rotten tooth is down here. This is where the rot is. And so you need to be able to transfer all that power. So Jesus' tiny, tiny little flesh is like that diamond blade on the end of that thing, driven by all this power of infinity from above and just going right to where the rot is and just deal with that right there, you know? Bring that power to bear right there there it doesn't matter how small it is it goes if you need it small you know to get right there and deal with it so the uh i think i'm done with my silly analogies but the um <laughs> for tonight I, you know um but when you think about what it is to be a human being it's so easy to see ourselves as these frail and feeble and blind and stupid human beings. And that's all horribly accurate in a, in a certain light. And yet, it is so important. There are things like you can't fit that compressor in your mouth. You know, it would do you no good. You can't fit all of infinity into this problem of dealing with evil right here. You needed that power. So yes, Jesus' little frail flesh actually did make a power that was available on this outermost level that hadn't been there before. Because that flesh was a container, doesn't matter how tiny it is, how frail it is, it contains and it holds everything. This is your heart. These are your lungs. This is your, your will, you know, your emotions. These are your thoughts. This is how heaven, all of the heavens come down into that, and so all of that is able to be funneled into this most holy form on the outside. That's why the curtains are the most sacred part of the tabernacle. And so the thought I want to leave you with tonight, friends, is that um, there is work that needs doing that has to be done by us here in this world. As feeble and foolish as we are, and as long as it takes us to grow up, the heavens would just be like that flopping fishy heart if they didn't have an anchor in us. It's an astonishing thought. It, it just stretches belief. But this is what Swedenborg teaches. That if, and he says this is what Scripture is all about. 
If they didn't have, why did Jesus need to come to this world? Why not just be God Almighty from up there and fix it? Well, you had to come down here where the problem was and apply the power exactly to the rot and not the rest of the tube. You know, it had to be very precisely applied. And why did the writers of Scripture need to be in this world? Why didn't angels just sing the truth from the heavens? It has to be funneled down into this outside form. It's all about the curtains. The curtains are what make it holy, so it contains everything. It's all there. This is the table. This is the candles, the lampstand. Here's where everything is. And why did Swedenborg, you know, why not get your best angel instead of some bachelor scientist or something? You know, why, why get Swedenborg to write all this stuff? He's in this world. It's so important. Now, when you start to see it, I don't know whether I've conveyed it accurately or, or well enough to you, good friends, but when you start to see how important this outermost level is, because this is where everything comes down and rests. It's the foundation of everything. Can you see why hell's greatest effort is to rot the outside? This is where hell wants to work. You know, this is, hell, this is where hell wants to work. And it's very, very successful. And it gets us to the point where, yes, a lot of our thoughts are, are, are foolish. A lot of our feelings are evil and destructive and so on. And hell wants to work through us. And then that's not holy. That's not a holy situation. But human beings are capable. We've been created to be in this holy condition where our thoughts and feelings are actually coming from angels, uh, from the spiritual world. And we, the, Jesus said, the works that I do, you will do also greater works than these will you do because I go to my Father uh, human, little, frail, stupid humans are designed to be these containers for heaven and to bring that power. And if you had one here, wouldn't it be better if you had two or three over here or 3,000 or 3 million, 3 billion? Wouldn't it be great if there were all these uh, presences of heaven so that heaven, so that the heart and the lungs up in heaven are not just flopping around with no rib cage and no diaphragm, but they can use us. Where, as the example with the, the dentist drill, it's a lot like a hand, isn't it? Where the, the power comes down, it's all concentrated in that finger where something happens. We are the hands and feet of the heavens, and if we can just get the right thoughts and feelings going on, you know, get the Lord to switch us over so that that's going on, we can be those curtains. We can supply a protection. It's astonishing. It sounds ridiculous. But it's true that on this outermost level, what the whole game is, is to try to unite heaven and earth, to bring heaven down to earth, because this is the holiest, and, the, and this, this is where it all happens, right here. And all the glory in the heavens is balancing on us. This is why the people in the heavens are so fascinated with every little detail of our lives. We may not realize that, but they are watching very carefully and, and wishing well for us and holding things back and, and furthering other things in our minds and trying to protect us because this outside is where it all happens. And once Jesus came down, his body, he glorified that body uh, I can't even put it into words. But it was so important to have that container of the divine down here. It absolutely did. Regardless of whether it's just one little baby and one little sort of mic or whatever. It worked. He was able to bring all of the Godhead bodily into that form. All that infinity. Omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence present in this little finite flesh that was then glorified and resurrected and disappeared from the tomb. And now he's looking for partners. He's open for business, looking for people who work with him to get things done in this world on this outermost level. So you are invited, good friends. You are hereby invited to participate. Thank you for your kind attention, and let's close with a prayer.
our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it is astounding that you bowed the heavens and came down into our world, that you took on the frailties of human flesh, a human mind, a human heart, and you glorify them, showing us that actually this is a glorious path. It is a glorious thing to be a human being, to have a heart, to have a mind, and you wish to dwell in us as your temple to do good to others through us. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends. The Lord has big things in store for us.